An excerpt from the book, Redemptive Deconstruction, a critical examination of evangelical Christianity that doesn't lead to atheism or progressive extremism, by Kenneth E. Crump. Chapter 8. Part 1. A Brief History of the American Political System, The Groups Who Influence American Politics, America's Extremism Problem, and Reevaluating How the Church Approaches Politics. There's never been a time in history when it's been more important for people of faith to be able to navigate the political world. I say this for the sake of both the church and our nation. We all know that politics can be divisive, but we seem to be becoming more divided and tribalistic than ever before. I'm only familiar with the American form of government and political system, so that's the example I'll be using. However, many of these principles are probably applicable to other democratic nations as well. There's a wide array of governmental systems throughout the world. Much of the developed world has some type of democratic system. America is a constitutional democratic republic with a two-party system. There are other parties, but few can muster enough votes to be relevant. In America's two-party system, Republicans tend to represent a conservative view, and Democrats usually represent a liberal or progressive point of view. Within each of these political parties, there's also a spectrum where most people can usually find their views represented. In most democratic governmental systems, there's a left versus right battle for power. The terms left and right can be traced back to the seating arrangements of the French National Assembly during the French Revolution. In 1789, while drafting their constitution, the delegates were debating the limitations that should be placed on the monarchy. In the assembly hall, the anti-royal revolutionaries sat to the presiding officer's left and supporters of the monarchy sat on the right. The left wing supported change and empowerment of the people. Today we would call that liberal or progressive. Those who sat on the right wing of the hall supported the status quo and the monarchy. Today we would call that conservative. This dichotomy has continued to exist in various forms until today. A Brief History of the American Political System Just after America secured its independence, its leaders began debating what form of government their new republic should take. George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, and John Adams organized themselves as the Federalists. They promoted a strong central government with a national bank and saw no need for a Bill of Rights. Others who opposed these principles, such as Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, were called Anti-Federalists, who later became the Democratic Republicans. They believed in a smaller, decentralized government with a Bill of Rights. One of the first problems the newly formed American government had was getting a constitution ratified by the states. This was proved to be difficult because it didn't contain a Bill of Rights for individual citizens. The American people didn't want to go back to what they just fought a war to free themselves from. So they wanted to make sure that there were rights in place for individual citizens that limited the power of government. Thomas Jefferson and the Anti-Federalists seemed to have the American people on their side. The Federalists, however, were insisting on a central bank and claimed the Constitution provided all the rights the people need. What we eventually ended up with is a Bill of Rights and a central bank. So both sides found a way to work together. Although a less than perfect system, it usually gets the job done. We still see this throughout the history of our nation as we vacillate between right and left perspectives. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. Our family always had a boat, and I spent nearly every weekend during the summer on the Mississippi River. When I was old enough, my father taught me how to navigate the river. This experience is an excellent example of how our democratic political system works. When you're traveling on a navigable river, 
the United States government is kind enough to provide us with aids to navigation. One of these aids are dayboard markers. They are alternately placed on the riverbank to help the boater stay in the channel of the river. The channel is the deep part, usually in the middle, where it's safe to operate a boat without running aground. These boards also have bright strobe lights that are visible at night. For example, if you're traveling downstream at night, you find the nearest dayboard light and you head toward it. As you get closer, you'll eventually see a dayboard light on the opposite side of the river. When it's visible, you now begin to head toward that one. If you continue this process, you find yourself making a zigzag pattern as you travel down the river. This will keep you in the middle of the river, where it's deep and safe. If you choose not to do this and go too far to the right or left bank, you may find yourself running aground or hitting a rock and sinking your boat. This system isn't as effective as knowing where the channel is and staying right in the middle, but it will keep you safe. If you look at the history of the United States political process, it's very similar to navigating a river using dayboards. We tend to go back and forth between the right and the left, and just like the river, if we go too far to the right or too far to the left, we're in danger of running aground or sinking. In the early 19th century, the Democratic Republicans were dominant and the Federalists slowly faded into irrelevance. The ideological fights then moved within the Democratic-Republican Party. So you still had this right versus left dynamic, but now it was within a single party. In 1824, John Quincy Adams won the presidential election, despite Andrew Jackson winning the popular vote. This divided the Democratic Party into the Democrats and the Whig Party. The Democratic Party was officially formed in 1828 when they were led by Andrew Jackson. He opposed the National Bank of the United States, and he largely supported states' rights and minimal government regulation. The Whig Party stood in distinct opposition to Jackson and the Democrats and supported the National Bank. The donkey symbol that the Democratic Party still uses to this day came from Andrew Jackson's opponents calling him a jackass, thus implying that he was stubborn and not so bright, like a donkey. Jackson flipped the script and embraced the symbol, and it's been used as an icon for the Democratic Party ever since. In the mid-19th century, slavery was the biggest political issue. The Democratic Party had a wide spectrum of viewpoints among its membership. Southern Democrats wished for slavery to be expanded into the new western states. Northern Democrats felt like the issue should be settled on a local level and through popular referendum. At this point, Northerners weren't advocating outlawing slavery at the federal level, just preventing it from moving westward. The Republican Party was formed in 1854 by the Whigs and Democrats. They rejected a pro-slavery ideology and formed a party with an anti-slavery platform. Their candidate for president was a country lawyer from Illinois named Abraham Lincoln, who ended up winning the presidential election of 1860. Before Lincoln was even inaugurated, some of the southern states seceded from the United States of America and formed their own government, and thus the Civil War began. Eventually, Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, freeing the slaves in 1863. After four bloody years, the Civil War was over when Grant accepted Lee's surrender at the Appomattox Courthouse on April 9, 1865. Five days later, on April 14th, President Lincoln was assassinated by John Wilkes Booth at Ford's Theater in Washington. Sherman later received Johnson's surrender on April 26, officially ending the Civil War. After the war, the South was mainly conservative Democrats who were primarily agrarian and anti-big business. Although the slaves were freed on paper, little changed in the South. 
The North was mostly Republican in their version of what we would call progressive today. Some fought for civil and voting rights for the black population, but most just paid lip service because they felt that black Americans were inferior. Over the years, the Republican Party concentrated on economic growth, industry, and big business in the northern states. Eventually, they became the party for the wealthy class in society. Many Republicans prospered in the Roaring Twenties until the stock market crashed in 1929. This began the Great Depression, and Americans blamed President Herbert Hoover and the Republicans for this dark time in American history. In 1932, the country elected Democrat Franklin D. Roosevelt as president, who then launched several progressive government-funded social programs, such as ensuring Social Security, improving infrastructure, and establishing a minimum wage. These policies appealed to working-class voters and the poor, many of whom were black. Some Southern Democrats, who had more traditional conservative views, joined the Republican Party instead. Roosevelt's progressive liberal policies laid the groundwork for the modern Democratic Party. Roosevelt died in office just before the end of World War II. Roosevelt's vice president, Harry Truman, took office after Roosevelt's death. Truman then desegregated the armed forces. This, coupled with the Democratic policies that helped the poor and working class, began the shift of African-American voters away from the anti-slavery Republican Party toward the Democratic Party, which is now viewed as the party of the disenfranchised. In 1953, Dwight Eisenhower and his vice president, Richard Nixon, were elected under the Republican banner and served two terms until 1961. Eisenhower's position as Supreme Allied Commander during World War II certainly helped him win the election. In 1960, John F. Kennedy was elected as president and aggressively continued to fight for the civil rights of African Americans, women, and other disenfranchised people in America. This was a significant leap forward for the civil rights movement that helped solidify the Democratic Party's base. At the same time, Martin Luther King, although not a politician, did much to change hearts and minds with his message of truth, love, and nonviolence. In 1964, Barry Goldwater and the Republican Party realized they were losing young people, women, and people of color, began a campaign known as the Southern Strategy. This approach reached out primarily to Southern white men and Protestant Christians. In 1968 through 72, Richard Nixon continued this strategy and helped solidify a solid Republican base in the South. The Republicans had put together a coalition of who was left. It didn't matter what was right or wrong, if the other side had good ideas or who had the truth on their side, the only thing that mattered was to put together a coalition of the fragmented leftover groups of people. This was a very important aspect of politics that people need to be aware of. Generally speaking, political handlers and operatives are more concerned with obtaining and keeping power than what's good for the country. Although we're using Republicans as an example, Democrats have done the same thing when it's to their advantage as well. This is just how politics works. But this can become a problem when the voting public stops paying attention to issues. If we're not careful, we can lose our objectivity and the greater good. It becomes more about us versus them, a brutal form of tribalism where people are motivated by a deaf and dumb emotionalism rather than a rational examination of the issues. In this less than perfect system of democracy, we will always have political operatives that are more concerned with power than truth or justice. Corruption and politics are the unfortunate side effects of freedom and the dark side of human nature. We may not be able to completely stop it, but we can at least keep it to a minimum.
Since then, we've seesawed back and forth between Republicans and Democrats. But this is primarily where the lines have been drawn. Republicans tend to represent the status quo, big business, and law enforcement. They promote a strong military and traditional Christian family values, at least in theory. They tend to look to the free market or individual initiatives for solutions to problems. Democrats tend to stand for people of color, the poor, women, the LGBTQ community, and civil rights. They view the government as a tool to help the disenfranchised and protect the public from the powerful and the wealthy. There certainly is a lot of history since then until now, but the point of all this is to demonstrate the dichotomous nature of our political system and where we are now. We still find ourselves with these two groups of left versus right. In other words, these are the groups of people, the issues, and how the two sides have aligned themselves. And there are several groups that influence our modern-day dichotomous political system. The actors in our great political drama. Wealthy influencers. These are affluent individuals who use their wealth to influence political power in America. Some have inherited their wealth while others started off as working class people and worked their way up the ladder. Some are sincere and want to use their money to influence elections for what they think would make America a better nation. Others are more concerned with self-interest and have little concern for the American people. On the left, you have people like George Soros and Tom Steyer who donate to Democrats and progressive causes. On the other side, Charles and David Koch, who help Republicans and conservative causes. Corporate interest. These are companies that use their wealth as a company to influence elections. Usually this involves getting laws or regulations passed or removed that are favorable to the company's financial bottom line. Sometimes companies will take a position on a political issue or donate to groups for the sake of public relations. Some may support conservative pro-family groups in order to appeal to a more conservative audience. Others may support pro-choice or LGBTQ groups to appeal to a more left-leaning interest. But many times it has more to do with these companies looking like they care about people to offset their taking advantage of the same people with their business practices. This happens among conservatives and liberals alike. I have a Chick-fil-A Ben and Jerry's policy regarding corporate politics. Sure, Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield, who founded Ben and Jerry's, are a couple left-wing neo-commies. But their ice cream is hands down the best. And the Kathy family, who founded Chick-fil-A, have supported far-right political groups hostile to the LGBTQ community. But their food is delicious and has set the standard for customer service in the fast food industry. I eat both and have no intention of boycotting either. Nonprofit public interest groups. These may be legal advocacy groups, think tanks, trade unions, or other various 501c3 groups. Many times these groups are used to influence public opinion about an issue. Sometimes they're proxy organizations used to circumvent election laws and promote individual candidates. Others are sincere educational organizations. You find these groups on both the left and the right. Some are think tanks like the Heritage Foundation, Human Rights Watch, Cato Institute, Council on Foreign Relations, and the American Enterprise Institute. Others are legal advocacy groups like the American Civil Liberties Union the Alliance Defending Freedom, National Abortion and Reproductive Rights League, and the American Center for Law and Justice. Political media. These are what some call talking heads. They may be on broadcast cable outlets like Fox News or MSNBC, internet streams or over-the-air radio broadcasts, satellite radio, podcasts, YouTube, etc. These people are where most of the disinformation comes from. 
Even with legitimate issues and positions, they tend to promote radical beliefs that distort the truth. However sincere some may be, they tend to gravitate toward extremism because that's what sells. The more outrageous they are, the more viewers they get. The better the ratings, the more advertising that can be sold, and the more money made by the parent company and the person doing the broadcast. When getting our information from these media outlets, it's important to understand the difference between journalism and propaganda. Whether MSNBC or Fox News, when it's their news hour, they will simply report what's going on around the world. They are acting as journalists and have a responsibility to be objective and simply tell a story. This is called journalism. They may present it in a way that reflects their perspective, but for the most part, the daily news stories tend to be similar to the daily news stories on most other news outlets. When we watch political opinion shows, they are admittedly biased and give us their view. They have no duty to be objective. This is called propaganda. Propaganda is used to influence an audience and further an agenda. Unfortunately, that agenda is rarely the truth on these shows. Tucker Carlson, Rachel Maddow, Ben Shapiro, Ari Melber, etc. are examples of talking heads. They say whatever gets the best ratings. The more outrageous, the better. Unfortunately, many people take what they say as the gospel truth. Governments also use propaganda to promote ideas, but not always for benevolent purposes. We saw a lot of this during World War II. What is vital to understand about these types of shows is that this is not journalism. My wife is from Brazil and speaks Portuguese. I've learned a little Portuguese myself, primarily so I can tell when my Brazilian family is talking smack about me. One of the things that's fascinating about learning another language is the words that are commonly used in that language to describe something. Some words are the same as we use in English, just spelled and pronounced differently. Others are similar words, yet we probably use them differently in English. Then some words are completely different. One of the words Brazilians use for advertising is the word propaganda. It's rare that we would use this word in English, but if you think about it, it makes sense. When you see a television commercial, they're trying to sell you something. They don't care about the truth, the greater good, or your health. All they care about is manipulating you to do what they want. This is exactly what these media outlets are doing. When you watch these opinion shows, you would be mistaken to take what they say as the gospel truth. However, that's exactly what people do and what fuels much of the disinformation in our country. Religious Leaders in America, that usually means Christian leaders. On the right, you have predominantly white suburban churches that appeal to conservatives and Republicans. On the left, you have predominantly black urban churches that appeal to liberals and Democrats. The Trump phenomenon has only amplified this on the right. Some ministers avoid political issues as much as possible. Others will occasionally bring politics up, and then there are those who are very political some to the extent that most of their sermons are about political issues and legislation rather than salvation or piety. Sometimes you'll have crossover with clergy and media with religious broadcasters like Pat Robinson, the late Jerry Falwell Sr., or civil rights leaders like Jesse Jackson or Al Sharpton. Although they may not all be ordained clergy, they use their influence to promote political issues and candidates from a religious perspective. Political Handlers these are the people whose profession is getting people elected to office. Their job is not so much about policy, but rather how policy is perceived and which positions on policy will get people elected. 
Sometimes they use their skill set to get legislation through the political process, but their primary job is politics more than actual governing. If you define politics as the acquisition and retention of power, these are the people behind the scenes that make that happen. They are the power brokers. They aren't the kings, but rather the king makers. The important thing to understand is that they tend to use whatever means necessary to get the job done, including lies, deceit, or misinformation. Their job is to put enough groups of people together to vote for their candidate or policy. Many times they do this using common myths or disinformation. The truth is a side issue. Perception is reality. It's an end justifies the means strategy. And this is the disturbing truth, the dark side of our American political system. Most people don't take the time to research and carefully weigh the issues. They have been spoon-fed certain ideas and myths that usually have little to do with facts or thoughtful arguments. Political handlers know this and exploit it daily. People are more motivated by fear and anger than they are by faith and love. Political handlers want to motivate people to take action, vote, protest, give money, etc. And they know the easiest way to do that is through the vilest aspects of human nature. It's not about what's best for America, but how these handlers can scare enough people into voting the way they want them to. Politicians. These are the people who hold office and enjoy the power and privileges that go with their position in government. Some are sincere, while others are just political puppets for those who pull their strings behind the scenes. Then there are those who start off sincere, but over time allow themselves to be corrupted by the system. All these groups work together to continue the endless cycle of deceit and corruption that they profit from at our expense. But for the most part, the American political system has worked. Our nation has survived war, economic trouble, scandals, and corruption. We've taken some hits, but we're still standing. However, when the manipulation, disinformation, and the ends justifies the means tactics are more prevalent than the actual issues, we have a dysfunctional government. A good faith discussion of issues with common sense solutions seems to be taking a back seat. America's extremism problem. America doesn't have a conservative versus progressive problem. America has an extremism problem. The radical left wants to tell you that they have all the answers and everything conservatives stand for is evil. The far right tells you their version of the same. So what we end up with is one of two versions of extremism that only addresses issues from one biased point of view, and the American people can't understand why what they want rarely gets done. On each side, you have common sense legislators that are sincere and mean well. Chances are you've never heard of them because they've been conditioned to gravitate to the extremes. Extremism is an equal opportunity employer. Both the conservative and liberal movements have their share of this problem. On the left, you have people who want more than just government-funded programs for people. They want socialism at the expense of capitalism. Instead of the wealthy paying their fair share, they want to punish rich people. They want to punish success. They aren't just advocating a woman's right to choose. They're passing legislation to make abortion on demand legal all the way up to birth. And if you dare to question them, they go after your business, get you banned from social media, and destroy your reputation. On the right, you have people that are more happy to defund poverty programs while simultaneously cutting taxes for the wealthy. They want to take away health care from millions of people simply because the people who came up with the solution are Democrats. Their version of diplomacy is flaunting our military muscle around the globe. They don't want people of color to immigrate here simply because they don't vote Republican. 
They would rather lock up African-Americans than fund programs that help eliminate systemic racism. Not to mention the tone-deaf response to the inordinate number of unarmed black citizens being killed by law enforcement. Granted, many of these issues are more complicated than stated above, but it just seems that the people who are the most extreme seem to be the ones running the two political parties in America. In response to a question from Jimmy Fallon during an episode of The Tonight Show about whether he felt comfortable with Donald Trump as a Republican nominee, President Obama said, quote, The truth is actually I'm worried about the Republican Party. And I know that sounds, you know, you know what it sounds like. You want the Republican nominee to be somebody who could do the job if they win. And you want folks who understand the issues and where you can sit across the table from them and have a principled argument and ultimately can still move the country forward, unquote, Barack Obama. In other words, former President Obama was saying that America needs a healthy Republican Party. What probably went without being said is that the centrist Democrats need Republicans to keep progressive extremists in check so centrist Democrats can get useful public policy passed without losing the progressive vote. Evangelicals are being lied to by political conservatives that have tainted the gospel with worldly ideologies and mixed them with kingdom principles. I'm not saying that being conservative is wrong or bad, but disingenuously linking conservative issues to the quote-unquote will of God is dishonest. The idea that conservative positions are God's will and progressive positions are somehow the devil's work is absurd. And when conservative politicians tell us that conservative view alone represents a biblical worldview, this is complete nonsense. You can find positions on both sides that line up with Scripture. The most important aspect of Christians navigating political issues isn't about being conservative or progressive. It's about understanding that we're going to see things differently and still need to be able to work together as one church. It's about putting our faith priorities before our political priorities. Anything that comes before God in our lives is an idol. Most Christians find it difficult to put their faith before partisan political activism or advocacy for individual candidates. Politicians want what they want and are willing to do whatever it takes to get it, including putting their integrity and their faith on a shelf. Unfortunately, too many evangelicals seem to be looking the other way when this happens. Jesus' prayer for the church right before he was crucified was, quote, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so they may be one as we are one, unquote. John 17, 11, NIV. Later in the same prayer, Jesus again talks about unity. Quote, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, and they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Unquote. John 17, 20-23, NIV. Jesus prayed for us today that we would be one so that the world would see this and see God in the church. Politicians win or lose based on the results on election day. The church wins or loses based on how we treat each other. We must not allow anything or any person to divide us. 
What happens in politics and government is temporary and one day will be forgotten. What happens regarding the church and salvation will echo in eternity. As Christians, our hope is not in a political person, party, or agenda. Our hope is in Jesus and his message. There are numerous American political parties that have existed over the centuries that no longer exist. Why are we falling on our swords over a political view or movement that 10 to 15 years from now will probably change or no longer exist? We need to stop allowing ourselves to be plagued by political handlers. I'm not saying don't be conservative or progressive or whatever, but don't allow yourself to be manipulated by professional political people who probably don't have your best interest at heart. Take a breath. Take a step back. Do your own research. Listen to people with different views and ask sincere questions. It's important that we don't speak before we have all the facts. This is a biblical concept. Quote, He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. Proverbs 18.13, New King James Version. The Living Bible is a little more blunt. Quote, What a shame. Yes, how stupid to decide before knowing the facts. Proverbs 18.13, The Living Bible. We should never allow our political views to turn us into someone that doesn't line up with Scripture. There will always be disagreement on policy, platform, and legislation, but it's vital that we don't allow this to divide us. Reevaluating how the church approaches politics. As a church, we need to reevaluate our approach to political involvement and social issues. We need to ask ourselves, what does the Bible really say about politics? What did Jesus and the apostles teach us, and what was their example? I want to challenge you to take a second look at what the Bible says about how we should approach political issues. I've found that the people I have political discussions with fall into three primary categories. It doesn't matter what their political affiliation is or whether they're conservative, liberal, progressive, or something else. Number one, reasonable people. These are people with whom we can have a meaningful discussion. They don't get upset when someone challenges their views. They're well-read, intelligent, informed with facts, have done their own research using primary sources, and re-evaluate their views when presented with new information. When done, no one's feelings are hurt, and we can move on to other non-political subjects. Number two, agree to disagree people. These are people with whom we have tried to have discussions about politics, social issues, but realize it's probably not possible and that it's more important that we remain friends, so we agree to disagree and just avoid political conversations. Many times, this category involves family members. Number three, toxic people. These are people that are so toxic they have become abusive and petty. They are hateful, divisive, and use name-calling and sometimes profanity. They are unreasonable, arrogant, narrow-minded, and usually misinformed. They can be anywhere in the political spectrum from far right to far left. These are people who it's better to part ways with. Sometimes this only happens during a particular season, and then they may come to their senses later and you can resume a relationship with them. But some will probably never change. We are in a really weird place today regarding politics. No political leaders to blame for everything. Many times, the very people accusing political leaders of being divisive are just as divisive themselves. And it's really appalling how much hate, anger, and discord has been sown into our country. I don't know if the people who act like this have always been like this, or the political climate has just given these people the green light to be so openly toxic. It's just sad that our nation has come to this. 
I've had friends I've known for years that I've had to part ways with. It's not because of their views, but because they've turned into such horrible people. I have friends that are very conservative, some that are very liberal. My circle includes people that are straight, gay, Christians, Muslims, atheists, pagans, black, white, Latino, rich, poor, middle class, and who live everywhere in the world. The ones who are my friends are my friends because they're good people, not because of their political beliefs, race, sexual orientation, or social status. One person who I've known for decades told me that if, quote, if you don't like the current political climate in America, you and your wife should move to the shithole country that your wife came from, unquote. First of all, Brazil is hardly a shithole. It's got problems like every other country, but I wouldn't mind living in the beach where it's summer all year long. I don't mind people disagreeing with me, but when you're that disrespectful to me or my family, that's when I'm done. That's the kind of stuff that's unacceptable, especially when it comes from people who claim to be Christians. These types of issues have become problematic for the reputation of the church, and it's high time we take another look at what the Scripture really says about political involvement.